Hello and welcome to the Flavorware podcast. I am your host, Tom Hawking. Casting the pod with me this week is my co-host, Mose Halperin. How are we, Mose? Uh, we're, we're casting the pod. We are casting the pod. We are casting the pod with the assistance of Sarah Seltzer and Alison Herman. Um, and Alison, I'm going to throw to you first because you want to talk about Bojack Horseman. Uh, yes, Bojack Horseman is a wonderful Netflix show. Um, I guess it, it technically falls into the same category as... Adult Swim or Family Guy in that it's an animated show but they say swears and characters have sex and but it's still kind of absurd. Um, the first season dropped about a year ago and had sort of tepid reviews. I think the first six episodes um, didn't really establish the tone as well as if you see the whole season, which is something that's very common with Netflix sure. shows often. Um, but the essential premise of the show is a washed-up sitcom star whose name is Bojack Horseman. And is a um, horse. And because he is a horse who <laughs> walks on two legs, um, is kind of navigating fame and unhappiness uh, as a washed-up sitcom star in this animated world where there are people, but there are also animals that walk and talk like people, but do things like, if you're a cat, like Bojack's agent, Princess Carolyn, um, you have a song from Cats as your ringtone, and you have a cat tree on your desk at work. Um, so, and it's a really visually detailed, lush show. You get all these hilarious details. My personal favorite animal joke is they go to Lowe's, and it's literally just called Lowe's, but like with an animal name or something. Like they, they couldn't come up with a joke, and then they made that the actual joke. <laughs> Um, so the second season has been out for a couple weeks, which means it's prime podcast discussion time because people who Absolutely. don't do this for a living have presumably had time to catch up with this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> people who don't watch this in less than 20 hours like I did uh, have presumably caught up with this. So Sarah, um, what do you find most appealing about this show? So I'm about halfway through the second season now. I just watched the whole first season over the weekend. Um, I just like the way it... It has these arcs that go throughout the whole that go throughout the whole season, and the episodes meld really beautifully into each other. And there's a lot of character development, um, and you see, you know, Bojack is kind of a hero in the in the Lena Dunham mode of, of being unlikable and um, cruel to the people, a narcissist, um, in you know, self sabotaging, but also very sympathetic. Um, because it comes from sadness and one of the most amazing things is the flashbacks to his childhood with his negligent horse (laughs) horse parents Um, so it's kind of a you know a show that whose thesis is like the damaged do damage Mm, and they don't want to and that's really profound and they're also there's um, you know I just watched the episode there's a funeral and (laughs) Henry Winkler is a guest character and he delivers these thoughts on death that are like basically they sum up sort of an atheist approach to death and its meaninglessness that were really really profound (laughs) and had me nodding my head and feeling really sad but also you know very satisfied on an entertainment level so it kind of is you know it's got some philosophy in there and um while also being funny and dark and entertaining yeah I I actually have a friend who kind of accidentally got in front of the entire critical conversation about this show where he said um, 
in a weird way, it reminds me of Mad Men, which at first I was like, oh, that's clearly because you binge both of them back to back, which is what this friend had just done. But then the more I think about it, the more it's such a, both of them sort of center on these characters who on the surface have not it all, but Don in particular has worked really hard. Don Draper in particular has worked really hard to fulfill this kind of stereotypical American dream of the house in the suburbs and the high paying job and the philandering. And Bojack has a giant house in the Hollywood Hills and is super wealthy, but they both work so well as dramatic premises because they're people who've kind of had every tier of their Maslow's hierarchy filled and now they can just preoccupy their entire existences with why am I not spiritually fulfilled and happy. Hmm. Um, and it also works really well because it alternates these very straightforwardly sad philosophical takes on life. Um, like my personal is there's a monologue at the end of season one or, or a conversation where they're on the roof of Bojack's friend and ghostwriter Diane's house and she has married a dog. Yes. Just don't question the yes. physics of that. Um, Mr. Peanut Butter. Named Mr. Peanut Butter, who's voiced by Paul of Tompkins. And Bojack's basically asking her if he's a good person. And she just says, or like deep down, you think I'm a good person, right? And she says, I don't really think there's such a thing as deep down. I just think you're the cumulative effect of all your actions. <laughs> Which it's really incredible that a show can ha have um, a dialogue like that that's ostensibly a comedy and not come across as extremely self-serious or self-indulgent and then segue right back into comedy. I guess on the topic of um, it being a comedy and yet addressing kind of you know weighty issues without seeming preachy, um, I think it's like maybe the best example of an animated show that is like that, that, that leverages the inherent absurdity of having a kind of serious animated show and does it really really well. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because they're there are so many adult animated shows out right now that I love. Totally. Archer is great. Um, Rick and Morty's coming back, but they both kind of embrace the silliness of an animated comedy a lot more. And Bojack isn't afraid to kind of go slack or go serious in a way that Archer is very tightly self-referential -refer and mm -hmm. kind of very sitcommy in that it's a joke a minute. Mm -hmm. And then Bojack will kind of you could not laugh out loud for an entire episode, but you'll still get a very satisfying experience out of it. Definitely. I really love. Mm. I'm not an avid watcher of Bojack Horseman, but I've seen a few episodes, and one of the things that really um, interests me in it is uh, just how much it sort of reminds me of a, a bestialized and cartoonish version, or cartoon version, of a lot of the other things that we've been seeing. Um, there's been like such a surge in narratives about washed up actors and actresses and that's like been a huge huge thing like mm. in the last couple of years um last year Birdman was one of the which I didn't particularly like but it was one of the biggest films of the year um The Comeback is another fantastic show uh where you have a semi-unlikable main character who is a washed up sitcom star um and I think that it, the sort of focus right now in in most um meta television meta filmic things uh, on on the washed up star and not necessarily the star who's at the height of their career might have a lot to do with um just sort of like the cultural shifts that are going on and and film sort of giving way to television and what was formerly uh you know such a popular sitcom culture um and water cooler culture based on like what happened on the sitcom the previous night uh turning into um the sort of like harder to trace, more fragmentary uh, system of like really good TV shows across like the internet and other things. 
Yeah, there's a lot of Bojack <laughs> being frozen in time because the the sitcom that he was a star of is a very yeah. classic late 80s, early 90s studio audience laugh track. And um, I don't remember if it's in the season premiere, but it's definitely very early in the season. He landed a role at the end of last season in a very like Oscar Beatty biopic uh, directed by a woman voiced by Maria Bamford, who's also a really insightful presence. And then he discovers that he doesn't know how to act in any way except for that like shouty, very unsubtle sitcomy way. Even when he's supposed to be delivering like a tearful monologue, yeah. um, and it's it's a lot of like BoJack being out of touch with things, not just personally but also artistically. Yeah, but it's just on that point that you made. Um, I think it's interesting that. Um over maybe the last 10 years we've had a lot of narratives about middle class people kind of falling through a trapdoor um, you know, Breaking Bad is the classic one Weeds is another one and many people have tied that culturally to the recession and sort of general economic uncertainty and societal uncertainty um, and now we seem to have this focus on celebrities falling through the trapdoor um, so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on where that's coming from well yeah I mean the interesting thing is that the celebrities falling through the trapdoor it's not it's not so much of a financial one like these are people that are um, professionally stagnating as opposed to mm. uh, like falling off the edge of a cliff I mean one of the most interesting ones I mean not in every way but was Blue Jasmine because that was someone who was exceedingly wealthy and that just showed sort of the precarious state of, of like what it means to be an American generally and how easy it was for her to like fall into utter obscurity at the end she's basically homeless on a park bench mm. um, so yeah I feel like however with most of these it seems that that doesn't seem to be so much of a threat because these people have the immense support systems of like the the media that's also for the most part like kind of ruined their career mm. and the other people surrounding them who might still be succeeding so they have they have like the relics of, of what they formerly were to bolster them and at least keep them afloat, but but like as far as intellectually and professionally, they're not. And and I find it really interesting that Birdman was I would say probably the one that was the most dire, given like also just sort of the nature of like film slowly dying, being replaced by television, and then theater, which is the one that's been dying and dead for the longest time allegedly. Um, like that's the one where the character actually might just like go entirely off the deep end and commit mm. suicide. Mm. Um, so that's the one being shoved off of the cliff as the other sort of transition. I think part of it is also about well, maybe it's because of the internet age, or um, maybe there's something contemporary about it. But I think it's also just so much of these are just a, a chance for people who are creative to to explore and play with the how precarious it is to be creative and how much self-doubt comes with it and how much envy and mm. how much self-loathing and that's just that's always been there and I think some of these formats just give people a chance to explore it yeah one thing I do like about BoJack is that it's such a it's a premise that can so easily be so navel-gazy and referential about things that people can't relate to like 99.9% totally. .9 of people on earth are not famous people with mansions in Hollywood but it manages to take Bojack's kind of existential quandary of I'm super rich and I don't really need to do anything more and that's forcing me to confront the gaping chasm in my soul and make that into something that touches on religion and death and self-doubt and it's comparing it's, yourself yeah. to the people around you. Mm. Yeah. There's so much of that on the on the show. Mm. Yeah. And his relationship with Mr. Peanut Butter I actually find exactly. really fascinating because they're not 
enemies, they're not friends, but it's just a very straightforward foil relationship. And I was actually just talking about this with a friend the other day. It captures so well the sort of combination of resentment and jealousy and dislike that often happens when like a cynic looks at an optimist. Yes. <laughs> like it's not that we're cynics at all. I don't know. It's just that kind of No, um, it's true. It's true. Like Mr. Peanut Butter is perfectly nice to Bojack and Bojack just Bojack reflexively recoils from it and yet you don't hate Bojack for it. So in conclusion, we all love this we show. Do, we, we do and love we Bojack. We highly recommend it. Yes. yes. Look at all the conversations you can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alright, well, we should move on. Um, vocal fry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, such yeah. such such hot topic this week. Uh, <laughs> um, Sarah, did you have something you wanted to say about this? Well, no, just to give a little background, um, vocal fry is a vocal tick. That I'm not doing it very well. That is attributed to young women, but in fact is widely, um, widely to be found, particularly among younger people. Um, and it's been the subject of a public scolding mm-hmm. um, recently, for not for the first time. And um, yeah, you know, public scolding from Naomi Wolf. No yes, much. Naomi Wolf, and I think from others as well. Um, and the message is, young women. If you want to be taken seriously, talk seriously and don't use these ticks. It's basically, you know, very much equivalent to saying, you know, 10, 15 years ago, don't say like all the time. Don't, don't up talk. Don't yeah. up talk. Don't talk like a sexy baby. <laughs> yeah. Which once you hear, you can't. Once you think about the sexy baby voice, you start hearing it everywhere, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I had never but, thought about this until now. <laughs> uh, have you never seen the uh, Liz Lemon Hates Women or TGS Hates Women episode of 30 Rock? I did not like 30 Rock. Um, oh there's a, there's that, the movie, the sexy baby thing that movie that um, Lake Bell directed and wrote called In a World. Have you guys seen yeah, it? Yeah, it's so good. I've seen clips of it. So it's in Tig Notaro's wonderful new documentary. It is. It's a really good movie and that's one of the um, subtopics in the film is, you know, women and how they talk, but um, it's a public scolding. Then there have been a bunch of, you know, women, young women running back that, you know, they're basically saying that this is sexist because everyone has vocal tics and only when women use it do they get derided as being unserious or self-sabotaging. Mm. I mean, vocal fry is a particularly interesting one because I'm sure if you listen back through this podcast, you will hear Mose and I doing it like all the time. It's, it's, it's something that's kind of, um, I guess, endemic to the male way of speaking. Yeah. But, but for whatever reason, it seems to be, you know, policed it's also, when to it. unlike something like women constantly saying sorry, which is the subject of a pretty great Amy Schumer sketch from this season, um, or another article that came out recently is women say just or mitigating mm. words a lot in emails. It's not really something that vocal fry, I kind of think of it as just how my voice is. It's not like mm. an intentional thing. And it just seems like such a weird thing to hone in on. Is, is is Tina Belcher's uh, is that vocal fry? Yeah, yeah, I would I would classify uh, Dan Mintz slash Tina Belcher as a as a prime example. And Tina's voice is rightly celebrated for the beautiful <laughs> yes, tone it is. Absolutely. So. <laughs> I think from a non-gendered standpoint, it's really fascinating to look at why vocal fry has become such a thing and why it did replace up talk. Though I, I think that's and not necessarily in a derisive way at all of the fry because I like the fry I enjoy I enjoy the fry and I think it sort of like speaks in 
a very telling way to sort of the way that people feel nowadays and that I think that there is a well, obviously like there's just sort of a lackadaisical pessimism to the vocal fry it's like ah, I give up yeah and, and I think that that's kind of interesting if you can vocally give up while like in a job interview where you're actually like putting yourself out there and uh, I don't know I think that that's kind of an interesting coupling of those so you're two saying notes. this is an example of millennial <laughs> post-recession malaise I do I do I definitely think that actually because I, I remember when it first started occurring at least from when I first heard it, it was like the second I got to college. Like it was not prevalent among people at my high school. And then I got to college and then among the, like the most inaccessible group of people at my school, um, it was the only mode of speaking. And that sort of inaccessibility was achieved through a general sense because it was sort of the, not the dawn of, but like I would say the post dawn the after the <laughs> afternoon of, the of, tea time yeah, the, yeah the, tea, the tea time of um of that form of hipsterdom that like was so much about taking non-committally from other aspects of the culture in in such a way that one's apathy didn't have to like made it so that whatever you were pulling from wasn't necessarily approving or disapproving mm. of that thing that it was just totally neutral and right. so i feel like that so it's it's a it's a de-emphasis of all things is what vocal fry is to me yeah and i mean that that sort of apathy is is defense method i think yeah. um you know was certainly very much tied up with the culture of the time and now it's just there i mean yeah i think for a moment it like had its actual purpose and it like was a way for people to uh sort of like socially separate themselves and now it's just prevalent and I don't, yeah, and so policing it is really ridiculous. Mm. I really have, I think that the vocal fry policing is terrible, but I do have an issue with the sexy baby voice. <laughs> the sexy baby voice, it could really be thumbs up by the imitation of the Kardashians on Saturday Night Live. But what and if the babies feel empowered? That's the thing, I'm, I'm willing to have my assumption be, I'm, I'm willing to be told that I'm being sexist, so am I being sexist? I don't know, maybe what sexist. Have you, once again, I thing. need to bring up TGS Hates Women, in which the <laughs> premise is that uh, there's a new writer uh, that is brought into the faux SNL writer's room, and she is just the most. I think she literally describes herself as a sexy baby at one point. And then you find out at the end of the episode that she affects this, like, overly, overly sexual persona, um, basically as part of, like, a identity hiding scheme to hide, to like flee from her murderous ex-fiance um, and then Liz feels terrible because she was trying to empower this woman by saying she didn't need to act like a sexy baby um, I don't know I just find policing of vocal habits in general to be this like weirdly like talking about the way women act without actually talking about the way they act. I don't know. Um, well, I think that some of it comes from, like, it can definitely be traced to the patriarchy. Like, I think, you know, it's like women's bodies getting a lot smaller and body image stuff coming up after women enter the workforce. And so it's almost like voice. Sometimes I think that voices have gotten smaller as a way to take up less space and be less threatening, even maybe subconsciously, which doesn't mean that it's a bad thing, but it may be some sort of um, reaction to backlash, basically. Like, you know, if you read The Beauty Myth and a bunch of other, like, you know, foundational feminist texts uh, text about how in the 50s, when women were oppressed, like, there was a much curvier ideal 
larger ideal body type. And then mm -hmm. as women took up more space politically, they started taking up less and less space socially. Mm. And all this diet stuff came in as almost a way of keeping women smaller, to be smaller, <laughs> which is really smaller. interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so I do sometimes wonder about the Kardashian boys and whether that is all, you know, that relates relates mm. to the body stuff. Hmm. I, I think when men's voices are policed, which they are, it's, it's to do with class more than anything, you know. And, and femininity, of course. And, yeah. And, yeah, and femininity, absolutely. Part of the exact same um, patriarchal problem of, right. of yeah, there was just a whole policing generally perceivedly right. feminine voices. Right, definitely. Yeah, there was a whole documentary recently, which I unfortunately did not see, but it was about, like, quote-unquote gay boys. Oh, I can tell you. I, saw, yeah. I yeah. saw that documentary. I, had to, I, wrote, I wrote about it for us a long time ago before it got um, its full release, because I didn't think it was very good. But Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this this seems like a, an auspicious time to move on to this week's Is It Feminist with Sarah Seltzer. Is it feminist? <laughs> Gotta get the jingle for that. <laughs> we, just, we have a jingle we now. Yes, of course. Once we have a budget, there'll Very be a problem. Tuneful. <laughs> Very tuneful jingle. Um, Sarah, this crazy weather we've been having, is it feminist? Well, that's an interesting question. I'm going to refer to um, the Susan Sontag of the 1990s, Camille Paglia, <laughs> to answer that question. Paglia. Camille Paglia. Saline released a three-part interview with... Oh, it was three parts? Yes. Oh, I only saw two. And uh, not to be outdone, we did our own Palia hot take on the weather because <laughs> it has been very, very hot in New York City this week, followed today by torrential thunderstorms. And according to our quote-unquote interview with Palia, the hot weather is, a press, is um, an example of how PC feminism has run amok and has become very oppressive. And both air conditioning and thunderstorms are male, are healthy, virile resistance to this kind of crushing femininity, um, specifically air conditioners. And she thinks that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about gender and air conditioning in the media, a really, really crucial and important yes, issue for this, our times. I'm, I'm glad we're addressing this um, at last. Um, we're very cold all the time in the flavor wire offices. <laughs> And all, all of us, even those with white chromosomes. And uh, it's not a problem that is unique to us. In many office buildings in the summer in America, people are freezing. And Washington Post ran an article that suggested there was a gendered element to this, um, that women got colder in the office and men didn't care. And I have heard, I've heard the gender theory before. I heard it last, in, in my previous job, which was in a huge, huge academic office building. And... I was told that the air conditioning is set for, for men who wear suits and ties. So they're wearing two layers of fabric, so it's for their comfort. And the women who come in in dresses or sleeveless tops or whatever are freezing. I have no idea if that's true or if that's a, you know, just a rumor. Um, but according to Palia, women being cold in the office is uh, a Freudian way of displaying our wounds in public. And should be frowned upon. <laughs> According to me, we should just turn up the damn air conditioning. Yeah, I actually kind of. That sounds like a very sound theory with the with the suits. I just think that it's, it's more like women are. It's more socially acceptable for us to wear like short, yes, body revealing. Comfortable things in the summer, in the and really, it all comes <laughs> right. back to the patriarchy because it just means that it's not socially acceptable for men to dress in a. I comfortable. Guess, yeah, in a comfortable way. It would be better so, for the environment and for all yes. of us if everyone could just 
wear tank tops. Yes. There are some tank tops in this room. Tank, tank top representing so today. So is the takeaway of this <laughs> segment, air conditioning is not feminist, or? Um, air conditioning is not feminist. Okay, we've come to this definitive <laughs> conclusion. For the first time, we've got something not But, and, you know, well maybe, maybe let's modify that. Air conditioning in moderation <laughs> <laughs> is humanist. Okay. Yes. Okay, for everyone. Air conditioning in excess is the patriarchy. How about that? What do you guys think? I think that's an excellent theory. It's a great compromise. Uh, well, on that note, we will sign off for this week. Thank you for listening. Um, we will be casting the pod every couple of weeks, um, addressing such crucial issues as we have discussed here today. Uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, thank you for listening to the Flavor Wire podcast. <laughs>